Our passage this evening is 2 Corinthians 5. If you would turn back there with me, 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 18. I'm reading, incidentally, I'm reading from the uh, New King James uh, Version this evening. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 18. Before we read our lengthy passage for this evening, uh, let's, let's pray and ask the Lord to uh, bless us as we open the Word of God. Our Father and our God, as we, as we open the word this evening. Uh, we pray, Lord, that you would open this word unto us, that you would open up our, our ears, our minds, our understanding, uh, Lord, that, that your word would travel from, from our minds uh, into our heart, that Christ, Christ himself might be truly formed in us. We pray, Lord, for the spirit of, of wisdom and revelation to give to us a knowledge of of things spiritual this evening. Bless us, O Lord, we pray, by word and spirit. Amen. 2 Corinthians 5 and, and verse 18. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. There's much more to be said from this passage than what we will be considering this evening. But I do want us to consider, from verse 18 in particular, what it has to offer by way of a theology of the church. In other words, an understanding of the church, a theological understanding of the church, in other words, an understanding of the church in relation to God. Notice with me how verse 18 can be neatly divided into, into two parts. First, there is God's mission of reconciliation. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ. God's mission of reconciliation. This signals to us that it signals to us that by which the church exists. The church exists from God's own mission of reconciliation. Second, there is the church's ministry of reconciliation itself. So the rest of the verse, and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. Now, this signifies to us that for which the church exists, for the ministry of reconciliation. And so our text can be divided in two parts, that by which the church exists and that for which the church of Jesus Christ exists. The second part, that for which it exists, the ministry of reconciliation, is altogether dependent upon the first part, God's own mission of reconciliation. So as we open up this verse, verse 18, this is our main point this evening. God's mission of reconciliation 
creates and determines the very nature of the church's ministry of reconciliation to the world. Again, we see this unfolded for us in two parts in this verse. So first, the divine mission of reconciliation, that by which the church exists, and then secondly, the church's ministry of reconciliation, that for which the church exists. So consider with me, in the first place, the divine mission of reconciliation. As Paul progresses in this context from theology to ecclesiology, he supplies us with the surest point of departure. Now all things are of, or now all things are from God, ectu theu. And if all things are from God, then the church is from God. If the, if the object of true theology is God and all things in relation to God, then we cannot rightly understand ecclesiology, that is the doctrine of the church, except in relation to theology, in relation to God. All things are of God. Whatsoever is that is not God is of God and has its origin, therefore, and its being, its very existence, from God, and therefore has its very existence in relation to God. And so the principle, the principle of a sound ecclesiology, the principle of a sound ecclesiology is not first and foremost rooted in Christology, it is rooted in theology. And here, most especially, in God's aseity. Aseity is derived from, from Latin ase. It means of or from himself. It signifies God's absolute possession of his own being, of his own existence. In other words, he is not of another. He is not from another. He does not have his being from another though everything else has its origin and purpose, its creation and its continuation and its operation of and from him. This is the, this is the creator-creature distinction, which must be extended to the church no less than to any other creature or created thing which is to suggest that at the outset that it is, not, it is not us, it is not we, but it is God who grants the creation, the existence and the continuation and the operation of the church. As Paul says, it is of God, it is from God. And therefore we cannot simply think of we cannot simply think of the local church like so many evangelicals today, like any other human institution, as if, as if it is self-assembled and therefore self-governed in the absolute and ultimate sense. To do so would grant ecclesiology an unholy independence from theology. 
and it would be to grant the church's ministry of reconciliation and unholy independence from God's own mission of reconciliation. Rather, the church has its being and its life ad extra from outside of itself. It is of God who has reconciled to himself us, excuse me, reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ. And again, verse 19, who was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Karl Barth, I don't often quote Karl Barth, but Karl Barth, of all people, um, has, has said it well. The church has its origin in the origin of origins, by which he meant the external processions of the divine persons, the missions of the divine persons. The church has its origin in the origin of origins. That is to say, in the outward missions of the Son and of the Spirit, the Father's plan of reconciliation has been accomplished and has been applied such that the church comes into being by virtue of a holy and effectual calling of God, a calling which originates from the Father, instituted through the Son, and constituted by the Spirit. Again, the church has a divine origin by virtue of the divine missions, the result, of, the result being a redeemed community manifest in local societies, particular churches that are instituted by Christ and constituted by the Spirit of Christ. When we speak of, when we speak of the divine missions, we are speaking of the external works of God. But we must remember that God works in creation and he works in providence and redemption in a manner that is consistent with what and who he is in and of himself. Another way of saying this is that the manner in which the, the persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, uh, and, and the Son and Spirit in particular in this regard, the manner in which the persons go forth and proceed to work in time, in history, reveals something about the way that they proceed from one another and exist in relation to one another in eternity. For it is as John Webster said, for God's outer works rests upon God's inner perfection. Each divine person proceeds to act in time after the manner in which each divine person proceeds in relation to one another in eternity. What each person does and how they proceed to do it they do in a manner that is consistent with, with who they are in and of themselves in relation to one another. And this is why what our God does in history 
is able to reveal to us who and what he is in eternity. <clears throat> the concept of mission implies a, a going forth. It implies an outward, external procession, wherein the Son and the Spirit proceed in time after the same manner in which they proceed in eternity. The Son proceeding from the Father, the Spirit proceeding from the Father and the Son, and so on. But whereas their eternal processions constitute distinct personal relations within the Godhead, the temporal and external missions of the Son and the Spirit bring about new, they bring about new relations, but not any new relation in God, but nevertheless, a new relation in the creatures, in creatures, in creation. So for instance, in relation to God's mission of reconciliation. The Son's mission is to go forth in time in a Son-like manner in order to bring about a new Son-like relation within those given to Him by the Father. And similarly, we could say that the, the Spirit's mission is to go forth in time in a Spirit-like manner in order to bring about a new Spirit-like relation within Christ's people. And we'll explain this a little bit as we move on. So let's, let's, let's unpack it a little bit. Relying upon orthodox Trinitarian distinctions here. Consider the mission of the Son. Consider the mission of the Son as the Son who proceeds in the fullness of time in a Son-like way, after the manner of his personal existence. First, first of all, he is called the Son. He's called the Son of God. Why? Well, it is, of course, because he eternally proceeds from the Father, and he proceeds from the Father after the manner of a son. In other words, one who is eternally begotten, conceived, uh, eternally coming forth from the Father in a filial way, in a son-like way. And as such, the son's eternal procession or generation from the Father terminates in a relation within God himself a subsisting filial or son-like relation to the Father. The Son in relation to the Father, the Father in relation to the Son, as Father and Son. And so it is in the outward mission of the Son. He likewise proceeds in a way that is characteristic of who he is, as one sent from or proceeding from the Father proceeding from the Father in a Son-like way. But again, not in such a way that brings about any new filial relation within God, but a new relation with the creature, that is, within us in relation to God. And so the mission of the Son, going forth from the Father to reconcile the world in a Son-like way, brings about 
a new sun-like relation with the creature so that the sun's mission manifests both visibly and invisibly, visibly in the incarnation, right? You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Wherein God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself as the son in a son-like way. Not only because in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son born of a woman, but also because being found in the flesh, he assumed a son-like role as our mediator. At its most essential level, the concept of sonship signifies a relation of origin. In other words, he is from the Father, the origin of origins. He is from the Father, the the author, so to speak, the initiator, the Father. But this son-like relation of origin to the Father is given a creaturely mode of expression in the mediator's incarnate, son-like submission to the will and authority of the Father as mediator, as a man, in relation to whom his mission externally, that is, in relation to the Father, his mission externally, excuse me, eternally originated. He is a perfect manifestation. The incarnate Son of God is a perfect manifestation of the Father-Son relation in its creaturely and covenantal mode of expression in which he humbled himself, became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Through the incarnation, God was in Christ, visibly reconciling the world to himself in a son-like way. But unto what end? Well, that he might bring about a new and, we might say, invisible son-like relation within the redeemed, within a redeemed and reconciled people. We may speak of his visible mission and his invisible mission, invisibly, visibly in the incarnation, invisibly, therefore, we could say that both forensically, legally, covenantally, and spiritually, the divine mission of the Son brings about the adoption and the, the rebirth, or the birth, anyways, of many sons, of many children of God, affecting a new relation within them, not only in relation to the Father, but also a new familial, a new family relation to one another, in the Lord Jesus Christ. To put the matter bluntly, the purpose of the Son's mission is not only to reconcile individuals to God, but also to one another as children of the same Father. In other words, the larger purpose of the the Son's mission is the church. 
because God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself in a son-like way, sinners are reconciled, sons are adopted, a family of God is formed, local churches are instituted, and a household of faith is built. Particular societies of those who have been reconciled to the Father and to one another through the Son. This reminds us, again, that the church does not possess its being from itself. It exists by virtue of God's mission of reconciliation in the Son. The church only exists insofar as it participates in the Son's mission of reconciliation, apart from which it ceases to be a true church or any church. But what is said of the Son must also be said of the Spirit. What is instituted by the Son's mission is constituted by the Spirit's. Like the Son, the Spirit proceeds in time after the same manner in which he proceeds in eternity bringing about a new spirit-like relation within those whom the Son has reconciled to the Father. So again, in working with classic, cl- classical Trinitarian categories, it is confessed that we confess that the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. The Spirit proceeds in eternity from the Father and from the Son. And as much as the Scripture tells us that that the Spirit was sent by the Father and sent by the Son in the application of redemption. So again, we see from the manner in which he works in time, it manifests the manner in which he has proceeded from the Father and Son in eternity. And he is called Spirit. Why is he called Spirit? because he eternally proceeds from the Father and the Son in the same way that the spirit of a lover loves the beloved, as the spiritual bond of love uniting the two. And so it is, in the outward mission of the spirit, he proceeds in a way that is characteristic of who he is, sent from the Father and the Son in a spiritual and a unitive way not in such a way that brings about any new relation in God, but a new relation in the creature uniting the redeemed elect, first to the incarnate Son, and therefore to the Father also. But as the bond of love between the Father and the Son, the Spirit's mission is not only to unite individual sinners to Christ, but also to unite them to a community of sinners united to Christ. Right? For, Paul says, for by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Okay, this is a record. I'm going to quote Karl Barth again. <clears throat> but he may not have had it wrong when he said that the idea, when, when, when he said that the idea that 
The idea that we can, the notion that we can be united to Christ without being united to a church, he said that very idea, which is prevalent in broad evangelicalism, maybe, he says, maybe something akin to the sin against the Holy Spirit. For the Holy Spirit leads us directly into a reconciled community and not into a private relationship with Christ. As the bond of love between the Father and the Son, the Spirit is the bond of love that gathers, assembles, unites, and constitutes a community reconciled to the Father through the Son, who became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. So that that which the Father, if I can put it this way, forensically institutes through the mission of the Son, the Father and the Son formally constitute into particular churches and redeemed societies by the mission of the Spirit, who is in the church working through, verse 19, through the word of reconciliation. So consider with me the second half of this of verse 18, the church's ministry. The church's ministry. That for which the church exists. Again, verse 18. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ, and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. We noted at the beginning that verse 18 can be neatly divided into two parts, that by which, from which, the church exists, and that for which the church exists. We said the church exists by God's own mission of reconciliation. And, and, and in such a way that the church's own ministry of reconciliation to the world is derived from and dependent upon God's own mission of reconciliation toward us in Jesus Christ. God's mission of reconciliation creates and determines the very nature of the church's ministry of reconciliation to the world. We have been given a ministry of reconciliation as a result of and an ongoing participation in God's own mission of reconciliation through the Son and by the Spirit. Apart from the triune mission of our God, we have no ministry. Verse 18, God has given. He has given us the ministry of reconciliation. Verse 20, Paul, is, Paul, Paul reminds us that he is, he is an ambassador of Christ, not only preaching reconciliation in Christ, but Christ himself pleading through Paul, be reconciled to God. Ask yourself, 
what is the nature of the relationship between the church's ministry of reconciliation and the son's mission of reconciliation? So-called incarnational ecclesiologies, which are popular among so-called missional churches. They tend to conflate the mission of the son with the mission or ministry of the church. And as such, the church, viewed as an abiding incarnation and extension of Christ in the world, is thought to, the church is thought to continue Christ's mission in his absence. Though Christ is in heaven, the church is now in his absence, the acting subject through which reconciliation is brought to the ends of the earth on his behalf. Such an understanding tends, over time, to reduce God's work of reconciliation, God's work of reconciling the world to himself through Christ, to the church's work of moral and social action in his name. The emphasis tends to fall then upon, over time, it tends to fall upon the imitation of Christ rather than the worship of God through Christ. And the church's ministry of reconciliation, and conceived in these terms, conceived in terms of WWJD, becomes, again, in these ecclesiologies, disconnected from what Jesus, Jesus has already done and is still doing in and through the Spirit's mission of reconciliation to the world. As Michael Horton notes, in these ecclesiologies, the church would then be, the church would then be our work, inspired by Jesus, but our work nonetheless. But as Paul, as the apostle unequivocally states, all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ. By virtue of what God has done through Christ, a new and communal relation with God has been established. A relation that gives the church its purpose and determines its activity. And it is this particular purpose which Paul signals in what he says next, that by virtue of the Son's mission, he has given us the ministry of reconciliation. And so what is the relation between the church's ministry of reconciliation and the Son's mission of reconciliation? First, consider what it is not. The church has neither been instituted nor constituted by a mission of social action, and therefore neither has it been instituted or constituted for a ministry of social action. Second, then consider what the relation is, positively speaking. The church has been instituted by the reconciling mission of the Son through his death and resurrection and ascension. And it has been constituted by the reconciling mission of the Spirit, 
working through the ministry of the word of reconciliation. That word which bears witness, it bears witness to what? It bears witness to God's reconciling activity in Jesus Christ. And therefore the church being brought forth by the word, reconciled through that word, gathered according to that word, exists in order to give a living witness through that same word to the reconciling mission of the Son, that by which it exists. And as such, the church is itself the terminating point, the historical effect and receptive object of the Son's mission of reconciliation rather than the active subject carrying on things in his absence. <clears throat> the church no doubt has been given an activity. The church has been given an activity, a ministry, a ministry to perform and the due exercise of the means of grace. But think about that. Means of grace. These means... Right, the preached word, the ordinances, prayer, these means are not of themselves, much less of us or of the church, but of grace. They are means of grace and therefore of God. Behind every activity in the life of the church, every, every activity pertaining to the ministry of reconciliation, the church as church, the church acting as church, behind every human activity in the life of the church with respect to the due administration of the means of grace is a divine act. Behind every human activity in the means of grace and the administration of the means of grace is a divine act of holy convocation, the calling of God, and communication of that grace that is poured out upon us through the Son and by the Spirit. Uh, another way to say this is that although the incarnate Son is physically absent from us, seated at the right hand of God, absent from the body, um, well, in the resurrection, I'm thinking of Paul's language, but he is seated physically, rather, at the right hand of God. Nevertheless, he himself also continues. He continues from heaven to fulfill his ministry in the church, to fulfill his ministry for the church. The church's ministry of reconciliation being what it is, Therefore, not by virtue of his absence, but by virtue of, of the church's participation in his ongoing spiritual presence in and for the church. Speaking of his resurrection and his ascension, Jesus says in the Gospel of John, he said to his disciples, I am going away and coming back to you. I'm going away and coming back to you. Surely he's coming back on the last day. 
But that is not the coming back to which he is referring. In this context, he is speaking about the Holy Spirit, whom he would send upon his people, upon his church, after his ascension. In other words, he would come back through the mission of the Spirit, the Spirit who unites us to the mission of Christ and mediates the continued presence and activity of Christ within his church. Michael Horton notes that behind every human representation, such as the official ministry of the church, stands the Spirit, the divine witness at work in every human witness. The Son goes through the cross to the resurrection and is exalted in, his, in the ascension, breaking open the treasure houses of heaven to be distributed by the Spirit to his co-heirs, his church. And this happens, John Webster remarks, because at the Son's behest, the Spirit of truth is active in the church's life to guide it into all truth. John 16, 13. <coughs> the church at its core, you think of the the ministry of reconciliation, you think of its, its, its activity and operation, the church at its core is passive, having been made receptive by grace. It is a creation of the word, generated, sustained, directed, governed by the word, through which Christ's presence is made known by his spirit. It is a worshiping community whose life has as its core activity those activities that are principally passive and receptive of his ongoing activity in our midst. So hearing, receiving, believing, confessing, testifying. <clears throat> all to the divine word and work of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ. A truly missional understanding of the church would be to confess that the church is the mission of the Son and of the Spirit. It is the mission of the Son and the Spirit as a redeemed community whose ministry of reconciliation consists of bearing witness through the Word to God's mission in His Son and by His Spirit. Worship, so long as it is by and through the Word, is itself missional as a participation in the means of grace, a participation in the divine missions. Again, Michael Horton says it well. He says, the word that is preached, taught, sung, and prayed, along with baptism and the Eucharist, not only prepares us for mission, it also is itself the missionary event as visitor, visitors are able to hear and see the gospel, the gospel that it communicates and the communion that it generates.
the church is a human society, a, a human society that exists by virtue of its ongoing participation in the divine life, in the mission of the Son and of the Spirit, whereby Scripture says, the whole body is joined together and grows into a holy temple for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Amen. Will you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, as pastors and as churches, we pray that you would give to us a greater understanding of the existence and life and activity and worship of the church as a living participation in the ongoing mission of, the, of, of Christ and of the Spirit of Christ in our midst. We pray that you would make us receptive by grace to hear the voice of our Savior and his word, to know him, not only as absent in the body, but also present in the Spirit, and as preachers, to preach as though, as, as though it is Christ himself who, who is preaching who is pleading to the world, be reconciled to God. Give us boldness with the word of reconciliation, knowing that what stands behind it, what gives it its existence and life, its very ministry, is the ongoing mission of the Son and and the Spirit in our midst. May we be bold to preach Christ, and may Christ, by his Spirit, preach through us. We, we ask these things for Christ's sake. Amen.